What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. The talent is joining me for episode 136, my own private Idaho. I am George Tarrant, alongside the aforementioned talent, the man, the myth, society's black mirror, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? Fine and dandy. I am reflecting the society's evil back at it. Yes, that's kind of <laughs> been my jam since I was a teen. So finally, someone's <laughs> giving me some recognition. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. You're welcome. I expect the check in the post. <laughs> um, it's going to be a, a good week. 136 is an auspicious number. You may not sound like much, but um, this might be the first River Phoenix film we've, we've reviewed. I think it's the first River Phoenix film I've seen in a very long time. Well, we and, did have Explorers, obviously. Oh, we did. Sorry. Well, apart from that one. Apart from last week. We, <laughs> last um, week, this count has not been put on podcast services yet. Um, but we next week, we have a treat for everyone. A real treat. Oh, that's right. The treat we literally talked about two minutes ago. I Hi, I'm George Turin. Welcome to episode 136. <laughs> where where are we in the timeline? I can't remember anymore. Yeah, we are going to have a live in-person session. So, ladies and gentlemen, not only are you going to have the talent with me on screen, but you are probably going to have us complaining about ungodly biblical weather. That's usually what happens. It is pretty much the standard for now. <laughs> uh, I think this will be the first. I think we had one in-person show last year, if I recall correctly, um, in the last year's version of um, Electric Fried Brains or um, yes. Studios in, in, in uh, Hawthorne East here in Melbourne. Yeah, that um, would have been when I was, when uh, Fried Brain Productions was um, being fumigated. But that's one way to put it, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a very good way of putting it. Quite, quite <laughs> and I think I think last, I think it might have been that one that we did last year. It might have been the first in-person show we had done since 2019. Quite possibly, which is nuts to think about, frankly. Believe it or not, people, this show used to always happen in person. Yeah, um, there, there was in the Wayback Machine, that, that was a regular thing. It was the only, I think we only started doing this in when um, I want to say June, July of 2019, when um, when uh, logistics just kind of prevented um, the, mm -hmm. the easy easy catch ups we used to do when um, I lived in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, mm -hmm. moved house into a significantly less convenient location. But, but as George noted, it was one attempt in I want to say about this time, even about February of 2020. Um, just prior to, yeah. you know, the, the, the unspecified virus of unknown origin becoming a thing, um, I, I did try to drive up to um, the official home of uh, Fried Brain Productions. It uh, <laughs> was only prevented from doing so by a literal biblical event of, like, you know, epic was... rain, trees, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> It was it was nuts. I literally had to do off road to get to the pub to catch up with you because <laughs> there was just trees in the trees way. Trees on the road. Yeah, I literally couldn't drive to your from the pub not, to your place. For 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 everyone who thinks, oh, trees come down all the time, ladies and gentlemen, these are King Lake trees. These are the size of like a like a Buick just falling down across the road. <laughs> you don't want one to fall on you, and you sure as hell don't want to run Ooh. into one. Yeah. So um, it, it's. All this is to say it doesn't happen often anymore. 
and it's something we're all very excited. We're excited to do it for you. Yes. And hopefully you enjoy it next week. Um, exactly. So we are joined this week by Siren Divine. Hello. <laughs> That's one of my friends from work. She's my work wife. <laughs> Hello, Siren. Uh, I'm sorry you have to work with George. Um, I think it's a pain many have experienced before. But, you know, just keep it in mind. This two will, win, this two will pass. Yes, it, except for you, apparently. You're the, you're the only one who continuously comes back of your own choice. I've been working with you for eight years. So, you know, um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, my, it's my cross to bear. Um, it, is true. it is true. You you have been marked and now you are property. That is it. <laughs> uh, property of the Fried Brain Productions Corporation. Mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, very nefarious. Eventually I will work my debt off. Um, like you to say, we've never had to work a shift together. It's true. It's true. She, uh, she, she is assistant manager at a company that I will keep um, under under wraps because uh, you know whatever. And it just sounds more mysterious saying that, but um, yeah, she's a good one. She's uh, right. You're very very mysterious. Yes. Well, she, she is an enigma. Yeah. So, just, yeah. Let's go with the show. If you're listening to the podcast later, by the way, you too can get a shout out like Siren Divine. We yes. stream the show live from about 7, 7.30 Australian Eastern Time, be it daylight or otherwise, on mm -hmm. Twitch, on the YouTubes. Uh, is it on, on the Facebook? Facebooks. The Facebook. Um, yes. If you, um, you, you know, if you'd like to jump on and have a chat with us, mm -hmm. so like Siren Divine isn't doing now, please feel free. But yes, let's get on with the show. We've got a bit to cover this week. We've got, we've got a few bits, yeah. So we've got our chain movie of the week this week, which is My Own Private Idaho, the Gus Van Zandt. Uh, Van Sant written and directed um, Journey of the Self story starring River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves in two of their more iconic roles I would say certainly um, it was an unusual year of 1991 for Keanu Reeves because he did this and Speed I think it was in the same no years. that was 95 I think this would have been Point Break Point Break yes thank you sorry yes um, so he still very much had um, the baby puppy fat on. He was Stop a saying that I'm adorable. That's <laughs> um, that siren privately messaging me. <laughs> um, we have got me choosing the next movie, and I've got an interesting one. Um, we have got uh, updates on Peacemaker and the Book of Bob Fett. Uh, Travis is going to talk to us about Card Counter as well as his thoughts on Ghostbusters Afterlife. And I am going to talk, I, after the gym on Friday, I had a new weight regime, more weight put on. I ended up Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, basically walking around like a T-Rex because I couldn't move higher than this and my arms could only get to about there. So I was just walking around like a, like a weird, unusual T-Rex. So I figured, why not embrace that? I watched the Jurassic World movies and some of the Jurassic Park movies. So I'll have a little bit of a retrospect on that in advance of later this year's Jurassic World evolution or whatever it's called. I can't remember. Oh, Domination. Um, as well as um, actually one of uh, Siren Divine's favorite movie franchises, Underworld. So. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Um... <laughs> The first thing I was going to say was, do you even lift, bro? Um, I like, do, but it hurts. 
if lifting weights is enough to drive one to watch Underworld, then I should quit going to the gym. Um, <laughs> but even Kate Beckinsale in a skin tight outfit wasn't enough to save those films. Well, I will have thoughts on that. Very good. Not. I'm looking forward to. Should we? Should we start with what we should probably start with most weeks? It's a chain film. Why not? Yeah, let's tr- start with my own private Idaho. So, uh, let me just uh, get back to the right page here. My this own. Noted. This is the 1991 IMDb. So it's a drama. Two yeah. best friends living on the streets of Portland as hustlers embark on a journey of self-discovery and find their relationships stumbling along the way. That's a fairly uh, brief synopsis. A better one might be Mike Waters lives on the street and befriends a somewhat older and streetwise Scott Favor who shows him what is necessary to survive. Waters suffers from narcolepsy and can fall asleep at any moment and in almost any circumstance. Mm-hmm. Favor comes from a rich family and is rebelling against his own background. They travel together extensively. Waters is driven by the need to find his biological mother and spend time in Italy. Later mm-hmm. in life, however, Favor has joined mainstream society and has little time for his old friend. That's, um, again, <laughs> abridged. Um, yeah, this stars, as you note, the aforementioned River Phoenix as Mike Waters, Keanu mm-hmm. Reeves as Scott Favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, a few character actors in here uh, that I wasn't overly familiar with. You have a really recognizable names here Flea of Red Chili yep. Peppers fame mm-hmm. as Bud mm-hmm. and Udo Kia uh, yeah. as Hans. So, looking through his IMDb page, I'm like, I know this guy's face, but I can't exactly say from where um, he's in a lot of different stuff. Um, my personal favorite was Iron Sky. The Nazis oh, on the Moon right. movie. I remember that, yeah. Um, other than that, there's not a lot of big name stars in here. It's directed and written by Gus Van Sant, who became a big deal later in the 90s. He, of course, really struck gold with um, Good Will Hunting and mm-hmm. the glorious shot for shot remake of Psycho. Um, yeah. I was joking. Um, Completely unnecessary. This is also very loosely based on a couple of Shakespeare plays. Uh, IMDb credits Henry the Fourth, but I think there's a couple others in Evie's pulled inspiration from as well. Well, looking at some of the trivia about the movie, it this is an amalgamation of three different movie ideas that he had, and he just kind of smudged them into one and resulted. And can in I it. just say, it shows. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I have not seen this movie before this. Um, it was one that was regularly to- told to me through my acting course. Oh yeah, watch this because it's um, it's a, a powerhouse performances. All of this stuff. It's a weird fucking movie. They they have that Shakespearean dialect to it, which maybe it's ahead of its time considering the success of Romeo and Juliet that we've both talked about um, really appreciating as a modernization of the Bard. Um, but it just seemed so weird and very in contrast to everything that the story was trying to portray. And um, something that was noted in the um, in the trivia that I read was uh, um, members of the gay community said that they didn't like the movie until it got to the somewhat famous campsite um, sequence between just River and Keanu, where he's just having this very open, honest conversation about loving Scott. And it's the first time in the movie where the homosexual characters are not depicted as victims or um, kind of unfortunate 
bystanders of disastrous things going on in other people's lives. There's those very candid kind of shots of them in the cafe, just some of them talking about being raped and things like that. And it's very blasé spoken in the time, but it also very, very matter of fact. Oh yeah. yeah. And this horrible, horrible thing happened to me on one of my first, you know, dates as they call them. Um, yeah. I kind of wondered in that scene if those people were real. Um, street well, apparently, um, one or two of them were. Which doesn't surprise me because it, it kind of struck me mm. as almost documentary-ish. And in yeah. a way, that is a little bit ahead of its time. It's the kind of thing that Chloe Zhao has, has yeah. done more recently in a film like mm. Nomadland where, you know, she cast real um, Van Dwellers alongside, mm. you know, Frances McDormand and, and it was quite a – well, she won an Oscar. It was effective. Uh, it was also boring. Um, but um, but to, to actually incorporate that kind of documentary sort of style mm. footage or a documentary child scene to, into a, a narrative film was probably quite revolutionary in 1991. Yeah, it's um, there, there's a lot in stylistically in this that has I feel like kind of been replic replicated and refined over the time, like the modernization of Shakespeare. It is now. Um, you know, you think of a lot, there's a lot of different Shakespearean adaptations that have happened. We talked about them um, last week a little bit of the going into the 90s with the rom-com using Shakespeare as a, as a base for it. You think about Romeo and Juliet. You think Ten about Things I Hate About You. Ten Things I Hate About You, the uh, the tragedy of Macbeth that you talked about on Apple TV the other week. I think it was a very um, modern version of Othello around about 2000, 2001. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, it was the thing to do. Yeah, and then that sort of like pseudo documentary thing. You talked about Chloe Zhao, and um, it's, but at the same time, it's a very stark movie. It's very, very minimal, almost to the point of part of it kind of felt a little bit dogmatic, and early Lars von Trier ish, especially. Um, I guess spoilers at the end where they're at the funeral, there's um, Scott is attending the funeral of his father and just off in the distance, he sees the the group that he used to hang with all having their own funeral. And it's very raw and primal in its kind of woe and then elation and just letting out all of these emotions. And it very much felt like an early Lars von Trier, just go with it kind of, feel it's weird i gotta be honest i'm not overly familiar with lars von trier but you're right this is a very this is um this is indie filmmaking 90s style mm. um when i guess they got by on a significantly smaller budget and doing so was significantly harder mm. um uh, you know and van sans had celebrated director now mm -hmm. i um I think this is a film though that relies heavily on its performances particularly um, the the central performances of, of River Phoenix, Mike, and Keanu as Scott, mm -hmm. and the, he happened to luck onto two iconic stars mm. at the height of their beauty and mm. and their power, really in Hollywood in a way. Like yeah. this film is almost it's almost probably more famous now because River died young, um, but they are incredibly beautiful young men. Mm -hmm. um, in a fairly challenging role and playing gay in the um, mm -hmm. early nineties, uh, having, yeah. you know, was probably a very challenging thing. We talked about it in reality bites a few weeks ago, 
that um you know we only had that one, one gay character there who comes out of a closet but he's very much a sidelined minor mm-hmm. character who's very much a b story against mm-hmm. you know, the a story of um winona Ryder and ethan hawk there's this whole film is about you know some pretty challenging topics for 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 early 90s cinema and um while i would hesitate to call keanu Reeves scott gay i don't mm. think he is gay um yeah. as he sort of noted that that scene at the end where they're having he says i don't think a man can love another man mm. um whereas river phoenix i think in that scene would actually you probably come and say yes he, he is gay and not a major mm. or a fairly notable american film to come out we have a gay main character and you know talk about mm. you know gay hustlers is, is a pretty or at least you know street hustlers who engage in gay sex is a pretty challenging film to happen um so as you sort of said, there's an iconic role for two beautiful young men at the height of their powers that hold up, I think, a pretty weak film. Um, yeah. I had problems with this film. Um, as you too. noted, the, the the Shakespearean link is actually incredibly obvious. I should note, I'd not seen this film before this week either. Um, so the film's almost cut, the film's almost in segments. That's what I talked about, where you can see the joins. Yeah. Really, obviously, you can see the joins. It's like two or three different films. You know what it reminded me of? From Dust Till Dawn, in a way. Remember from Dust Till Dawn when it first yeah. came out? You're like, okay, this is Tarantino Road movie. Okay, it's a vampire movie. Um, you know, like that yeah. was a really weird right turn that film took, you know. Um, but the, the, th- the thing with, at least with Dust Till Dawn, is it kind of, while it, it did change gears um, and, and genres very abruptly, um, it kept with them for quite a while. Whereas with this one, he tries to merge them from one to another. It goes and back it and forth. Up... Like once you're right, yeah. once Russell Dawn made his turn, it stayed on that road for the rest of the film. So yeah. if we have the sequences in not just Portland, but Seattle as well, I think it's set at points mm. where we catch the guys hanging around with the, the group of secret hustlers they hang with, including their leader, loosely speaking, Bob. Yeah. And they're in an abandoned hotel or a you know, virtually abandoned hotel they're living. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and in their sort of shenanigans they get up to, including robbing people and mm-hmm. such, um, the, all that dialogue is Shakespearean esque, you know. And yeah. I actually don't know if that's actually the dialogue from it, actual from you know, a la so mm-hmm. Romeo plus Juliet, which is actually the dialogue from the play. If he's a lifted and shifted lines from something like Henry IV, Henry V, but it's this loosely based on, or it's just inspired by, yeah, I don't know. But they, they, they you can't escape. Even if I didn't know it was Shakespearean from reading this, I would have known it because it's so obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay, you're like, okay, this is interesting. This is fine. You're doing again. This is not. This was revolutionary in 1991, but now not so much. Yeah. Um, but then we cut to you know there's scenes like you mentioned. Uh, those sort of face-to-face documentary-style interviews with the hustlers and the horrible experiences they've had. And then we cut to the road trip section of a film yeah. where that Shakespearean dialogue is gone. It's, yeah. it's just not there. Um, and then we cut back later, and it's back again. Yeah. So it's almost like Shakespeare exists in Portland and Seattle, but when they go out west to you know the aforementioned Idaho looking yeah. for things or when they go to Italy, no, no one speaks Shakespeareanly there. Uh, and it's like, I, I don't understand, mate, was there a deliberate choice to say, what are you trying to say by saying people speak, the film communicates this way here, but it communicates differently everywhere else? I I kind of just wrote it off in my own mind as 
just part of the dressing that the character Bob likes to have. You know, they they have this kind of breakdown of Bob where they scare the shit out of them and then make him just kind of talk and talk and talk and kind of go, oh, there were two men, there were four men, there were nine men, there were 11 men, and they keep on pointing it all out. Um, and everything that, every time Bob is on screen, it's almost like he is royalty. He's sitting essentially in a throne or these like deep red colored uh, clothes and things like that, that kind of represent some, some air of royalty and high society amongst, you know, he's the king of the, the street urchins kind of thing, which it kind of, I kind of wrote it off as just almost like language of court um but at the same time it just was so jarring suddenly going from that to a weird medley of young easy riders crossed with a touch of with nail and i a bit of that yeah yeah it's just, it just weird and and almost a bit like you know what was um a, it was that film with one with tim roth in it where rubenstein and what you call a dead Rosengrantz and Gilderstone. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I remember I saw that with housemates of mine when they were very stoned back once upon a time. Um, kind of like movie. Shakespearean, but winking at the audience at the same time. <coughs> um, and we have our very own Russian bot who's in the chat. So um, I, I do speak a little Russian, but I can't read that. So good evening to you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> We are polite to the bots. Um, you know, they we, we owe our existence to most of our most of our subscribers are bots. Yeah. Some of my favorite people are bots. Five um, out of seven bots approve of armchair producers. Exactly. Um, so I found it actually, but I also not much happens in this film. You know, it's yeah. it's a very sedate pace, it sort of sets. It's very yeah. talky. Um, yeah. and it's not particularly uplifting at the same time. It has no need to be uplifting. It's it's not telling a particularly happy story, but it's it it really slows to a snail's pace at a, a few times in the film. And yeah, I found it hard to keep engaged. Yeah, the one thing that I really it kind of shocked me when it when it happened the first time and then they repeated it was how they did the sex scenes those kind of frozen tableaus instead of just showing slow motion yeah. or anything like that it was a really unique interesting way of portraying sexual interaction and i actually approved of it i thought it was quite intelligent and um a very clever way of getting that just that element of visual sex into a movie that it was technically under the Disney banner because it was released by New Line Cinemas later on and things like that. It was like, it's a, it's a weird movie for Disney to kind of go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but we, know, we know they've always been big on challenging social issues, Disney. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> don't say something I found him odd. I don't know what he was going for with that. Um, I, again, I thought that was just another pretentious, stylized choice that didn't really do anything for the film besides look cool. Yeah, well, that, that's it. It was it was an interesting technical add to the movie, but it didn't actually add to the movie. It just further muddied the the thematics of the whole thing because it's like, okay, this 
this is just weird. It's interesting, but it doesn't add anything. Interesting about, I think there was a, a, a trivia item here, but that took a very, very long time to do some of those things, and that was very, very cold. Um, and yeah, good old Keanu, he um, he committed. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Robert Phoenix talked about the sex scene between Keanu Reeves and Kiara. Kiara. Keanu mm-hmm. was real naked with a beetle Kiara. That scene was really a drag. He was having a great time with his girl, but it was freezing cold and they were dying. So I think they were more worried about the temperature than the nudity. That took five hours. Ooh. Um, I That's think, harsh. I think Kiara Caselli would be very familiar with the concept of shrinkage after that. <laughs> No disrespect to Keanu. I'm, 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 I'm no disrespect to him. I'm, I'm sure he's doing. I'm sure he's doing fine. Um, <laughs> you know, um, you'd hope so. <laughs> my my favorite scene of the film actually was mm. when they were all. It was a very interesting scene where we were all on covers of gay pornographic magazines and having yeah. a conversation with each other. Um, there's nothing else from a technical aspect because you look at it and go, oh, that looks really good for 1991. And then you realize it was practical special effects. They were standing behind perspex screens without crap painted on them because they yeah. couldn't afford special effects. Yeah. I thought that was just ingenuity at its peak. Really, really well done. It looks really good. It, But again, overall, it kind of set this weird fairy tale kind of theme to it or this flight of fancy that nothing remotely like it gets picked up no, it doesn't happen again this film is very grounded for the rest of it very gritty yeah. but then we've got this almost lynchian you know dream sequence i, mean, I thought it looked beautiful it looked incredible yeah. and i enjoyed enjoyed watching it yeah and i enjoyed the interplay between the characters in that setting but it didn't have there was nothing else in this film that was in a similar vein i was i am yeah. really confused about what he was trying to do with this film i said it, yeah. i go back to it again it really feels like three ideas smooshed together to yeah. make a feature. And really I does. can't really understand, what, apart from two incredibly beautiful young men at the height of their you know, youth, um, you know, I don't understand what so, why this film is so iconic. I really, I really don't. I would... It was just because of exposure um, of these two high-profile actors being in what at the time got... Uh, labeled as a gay movie and it wasn't exactly a common thing or financially popular thing to to make your movie about and yet it got two of the biggest hottest young actors in Hollywood involved it's like that's going to draw some attention and oh it for for better or worse it pushes the gay button which is still to this day it is underrepresented overall especially in hollywood and i wonder if that happened because it does when talking with other people in cinematography and things like that it kind of has now been superseded by um the the next big gay movie to to really make it big which was brokeback mountain hey it did remind me that especially with five you know, the, mm. the campfire scene did kind of remind me a little bit of of, of Brokeback Mountain. Um, yeah. But you're right. I and mean, that was only, what, 2007, 2008? Brokeback Mountain? And, you know, that's yeah. only... That's, 
quite uh what it's about 13 14 years ago 2005 good lord how was it that long ago um yeah. but that was quite that was 14 years later and that was still pretty controversial they had exactly. again yeah. two yeah. hot very very hot stars in in jake mm-hmm. gyllenhaal and and keith ledger yeah um playing you know uh homosexual characters and even then that was 17 years ago fucking hell um yeah. <laughs> but um, that was um that was quite controversial at the time but i i think we've come a long way mm, from there. I, think, I think so too not I, certainly i'm not saying we really need where we need to be we're not we're not at the final destination and as you noted representation is still poor but you know um I, we have made progress i think maybe it's the That's thing true. I, again, again i'm not gay um I don't think we're fair to say we are not gay, so we're not part of the LGBTIQ community. So I probably shouldn't be saying that because you know you can come back to me. Actually, you know what? There's still you know this problem, that problem, that problem. But I guess I say from 1991, you would hope we made progress, and I 30 years later, and we have. Whereas if you made this film today with well, who would Timothy Chalamet would be one of them, and somebody else. Um, you know, I I don't think there'd be anywhere near. Something like that. I don't think there'd be anywhere near the controversy for it being a gay film, but it was. Yeah. Um, Even to to to, the, to that point, there's if you were to do that, you could actually see some negative of it's like, oh, this Oscar bait. Pretty much, or it's almost come the other way now. It's like, why are there always gay characters in my movies now? Um, you know, like. Um, we we have you know we had the, uh, a homosexual character in Eternals. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I believe Valkyrie is also pan. I think pansexual, if I'm not mistaken. So like we have LGBT characters in mm-hmm. the, the, the biggest <laughs> you know, franchise of films the universe has ever known. So like you know, people, it's it's come a long way, is what I would say, and I think that's a good thing. And maybe it was still. Mm-hmm. He's a film that needed to happen to get that, you know, as part of that fight. And in which case, you know, good luck to you. But uh, maybe, and also maybe it hasn't aged well. Maybe it's just a case of the stuff that was shocking in 1991, 92 is just a bit blase in 2022. Uh, and maybe you needed that shock and awe to kind of, you know, uh, engage you in the story in a way that I, I didn't find engaging. I do wonder, I think you're probably right in that regard, but and I also wonder if this is kind of one of those seed movies where it was because of the attention that it got at the time, young filmmakers and writers that are now um, actually working, they use this as like, oh, wow, you can get, you can do that sort of stuff. That's cool. And it was an inspiration for, for people. For I, I think it said that maybe this film inspired someone like Baz Luhrmann with that Romeo plus Juliet yeah. film he made five years after this. I, I don't know if that's true at all. Mm. I haven't got a source. I haven't seen it cited anywhere. But it was just a suggestion that uh, as a very modern, because this is a very 90s film as well. Oh, yeah. It's a very modern film. You know, maybe the idea of incorporating you know Shakespearean language into a more modern setting. Well, that's not exactly he's not exactly the first person to do that, but maybe that was something that inspired um, now Baz Luhrmann a few years later. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I've seen it now. Uh, I actually had a dinner with a friend this evening after work and before the show, and I was talking, okay. and, and somehow despite the fact that obviously I didn't love this film, I still managed to convince my friend Susie to actually go away and watch it. So um, there you go. Haven't seen it. I think I would recommend watching it. I think it's worth seeing, if nothing else. It, yeah. it does 
does say to me that we lost a tremendous talent when River Phoenix passed away. I would have, what he would have done with his career. I mean, we see his brother is also an incredible star. What a joy it would have been to have seen those two guys uh, in a movie together. Can you imagine a movie with River Phoenix and Heath Ledger? Yeah. Boom. Boom. I mean, yeah, he would have achieved great things. There was talk, you know, he was the next James Dean and in doing <laughs> keeping with that he died young. Yeah. Um, but he he was a tremendous talent and and what a shame he passed away at the young age of twenty-three. Yeah. But now it is my turn to take you the keys. And I, uh, I I said it before that I'm gonna take us to a little bit of an unusual place. I'm gonna follow Chiara Caselli who ended up being um, Scott, um, uh, Scott's wife that he met in Italy. She was in the 2002 movie Ripley's Game, which is a dying man in need of money is persuaded to assassinate a European crime boss. Now, this is an interesting movie because it has it's a pseudo-sequel to um, The Talented Mr. Ripley as it does follow on the character of Tom Ripley, played in this movie by one classic, John Malkovich. Uh, it also stars uh, DeGray Scott, Race Winston, Lynn Headey, um, and not too many other big-name stars, certainly in um, English, Australian, American, because it largely set, takes place in Europe, so there's a lot of European stars in there. It is directed by one Liliana Cavani, who I don't think I know any more of her work either. So it's just an interesting one that, um, yeah, it looks like she's best known for a lot of um, international stuff. Uh, and, yeah, Italian films. I've never saw the first talented Mr. Ripley, so I'll be curious to see... Oh. Um, if it's a film I needed to have seen to um, and to see the sequel to see the soft sequel, I have seen this before, but I really don't remember it. So it's going to be a whole new take for me. <laughs> but that is our link in the chain for this week. It is going to be Ripley's Game. Good choice. Um, it's going to be a little bit left to center. Yeah, I figured we've we've been playing it relatively safe and explanation wise so i figured why not do something a little unusual okay, now i would like to move on and just quickly talk a little quickly or not so quickly talk a little bit about ghostbusters afterlife because you yes. saw it a while ago and we did mm. get your take on things mm -hmm. um and i don't 100 remember exactly we tried to keep it spoiled three mm -hmm. um but um so now i can we can actually. So I think we can fair to go. Are we going to go full spoiler cast here? Because yeah, it's so. been out. I think in the states for a couple of months. It's been out here for a month. Or two. warning. I think it's coming out on DVD any day now in the states, which means yeah, it'll actually. be on torrent services before you know it. So, um, <laughs> I think your time. If you haven't seen it by now, I I think you know, at least you know, we're going to give a warning. You can turn off. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So sponsors, not spoilers. Uh, no spoilers. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe I start with this. Um, <laughs> yeah, doy. So I actually went to the theater yesterday to see this. So 
Um, I think personally we've kept it out of it. I mean, I don't know why I didn't go onto a, a streaming service somewhere way faster than this, but um, uh, I guess they were hoping to get their money back from the um, the theatres. But it was pretty empty yesterday. Um, yeah. So uh, this is the technically, I guess, well, if I'm covering stuff at Georgia Reset a couple of weeks ago, I apologise. You know, I don't remember what I don't remember what we did before we started the show, the learn two weeks ago. <sighs> Um, we'll do something so, once and everyone wants to copy it. <laughs> this film basically is ticks up after Ghostbusters 2 in a way, really. Well, there's no direct link from Ghostbusters 2. I don't really reference it directly. There's some Easter eggs. Mm. But um, it essentially ignores the, the, the reprehensible 2016 mm-hmm. Paul Feig film. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I did try. I thinking to myself while I was watching, like I, I shouldn't compare it too much to the flag film, but I'm going to because there's just too much mm-hmm. in here that I guess it's just too it, too many things this film does that film should have done. Um, yeah. So when a single mom and her two kids arrive in a small taken to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy their grandfather left behind. So. Mm-hmm. Um, they, that grandfather is Egon Spengler, the late Harold Ramis' character, who mm-hmm. obviously, being late, um, couldn't be in this. Uh, and and that we all we fought for a long time that um, that that was kind of going to doom the, um, the Ghostbusters franchise mm-hmm. um, forever. But this is this picks it up pretty well. So we have Carrie Coon as Carly, mm-hmm. and he, she is the single mother to Finn Wolfhard's Trevor and McKenna Grace's Phoebe. They're being evicted from their apartment in a city somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and they as um, they've disinherited uh, the property of their grandfather, who Carrie Coon's grandfather, who you know, she barely knew, the kids have never met. They mm-hmm. have nowhere else to go but this abandoned farmhouse in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. So they essentially mm-hmm. move out there because they have nowhere else to go. In doing yeah. so, we have Finn Wolfhard's Trevor, who is kind of more interested in getting getting laid. He uh, yep. he meets uh, Celeste on his lucky, who works at a local diner. He gets a job mm-hmm. there. That seems to be his main thrust. Uh, McKenna Grace as Phoebe is very uh, kind of socially awkward, but really into science, and she really starts to explore the space that she's in now and discovers a a trap, an old mm-hmm. ghost trap, which she takes to school, where it is recognised by her science teacher, uh, played by Paul Rudder's Gary Gruberson. Um, and uh, her, she and her friend, played by Logan Kim, whose name podcast, um, <laughs> for a kid, by the way. Uh, he's got a great kid, I need one of them. Um, and <laughs> they discover that you know, start to discover as we sort of know the, the Ghostbusters heritage she has in her family, and mm-hmm. that there's some funky shit going on in this town. Mm-hmm. It turns out that most of the town was owned by Ivo Shandor, Evo Shandor, Evo Shandor yeah. uh, who is the where kind of the guy who built the building in the original Ghostbusters, he's mentioned by name at least once or twice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and he owned a mine mm-hmm. in this small town where he smelted the, the mine was the, the material that they made the girders out of that were in the building in the first Ghostbusters. Which, you know, nice little connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's some funky shit going on in this town to do with ghosts. Yeah. Um, so... I felt I was kind of a bit torn on parts of his film. I think for the most part, it was pretty well done. It was entertaining. Mm-hmm. It was fan service on fan service on fan service. This mm-hmm. was The Force Awakens of the Ghostbusters franchise, the film 
that they had. This is Sony's apology to her fans after mm-hmm. the last one. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, I think, nowhere near as derivative as The Force Awakens was. Um, it has its moments, but it's not mm-hmm. as derivative. Yeah. Um, it is directed by Jason Reitman, who I'm a big fan of. I did shake his hand once at MIF. That's my claim to fame. Um, he His first feature was shown at MIF. It was um, Thank You for Smoking. Um, I think he's made a number of really good films. Thank You for Smoking, Up in the Air, Juno, Young Adult. He can seriously direct. He's and right. He's a very talented guy. The thing is, though, yeah. this is not the kind of film he usually does. It's the kind of no. film his dad did a lot better than him. Sort of action comedies yeah. with more Ivan Reitman's mm. um, sweet spot. Whereas, how would I describe him? He kind of does indie-ish coming of age films reasonably well. And, mm. and I mean, well, Young Adult wasn't coming of age, but you know, sweet, interesting indie films about lonely people. Mm. I think. Right. Every right. one of his movies should have uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, so I found myself halfway through going, wow, it's really interesting because you can kind of see that Jason Reitman layer on top of the Ivan Reitman stuff because mm. he obviously, obviously you know, he's dead pretty well. And he's pulling some pretty familiar levers and some pretty familiar tricks. We've sort of seen it. The film structure is fairly similar to... Mm. Yeah, you know, the original Ghostbusters film, in a sense. Um, but mm-hmm. I kind of what I liked about it, it had that film, that that Jason Reitman layer on it, in a sense of we meet this group of young people who are in an unusual situation, obviously, yeah. and trying. And, and it's a real, it's a coming of age moment for them. This is, you know, I kind of the relationship, the growing relationship between Trevor and Lucky, and you know, their moments together and. Uh, mm. Phoebe and podcast. Well, there's no re- romantic relationship, but to her finding a friend, and mm. it's, a, it's a lonely, socially awkward character. You know, finding someone who they click with is. It's, he does that kind of thing well, even mm. through the relation, the very brief, touched-on relationship that was growing between Callie and Gruberson. Again, he's just something he doesn't just do young people. I, one of the things I like, Robin and Dud did very well in Young Adult was um, he has a sort of a, what do you call it, an almost middle-aged Shelley Theron going back to her hometown as a published mm. writer and, and, you know, trying to get back together with a guy she liked in high school and stuff. He's a, he, she says he's a very cynical and odd character. Yeah. Um, and I really like that. And again, he's kind of got those characters. Callie's a fairly cynical character here. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. She's jaded beyond belief. And Gruberson pretty much is as well. One of the few laughs I got in the film, and this is a very dry comedy of this film, um, yeah. He basically, he, he, his way of managing the class in summer school was to put on horrible 80s horror films for him, like, including Cujo and Child Play, and just go into the next room and do his own work and just play <laughs> the kids. I laughed very hard at that. I thought that was funny. So in a way, he's kind of jaded and, and cynical about life as well. Yeah. And I like that he does these jaded, cynical characters very well. And so mm-hmm. uh, I found those relationships really nice, really believable, and they really that was nicely built on top of the existing Ghostbusters structure that was still there from you know, yes. last time. But we had the same score pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and of- the, just the, the as, as a note on that, the score was just perfectly used that it, it sent those tingles down your spine at the, at the appropriate times when, like even just like little little audio nods of ghosts or mm. the traps opening up or there's like the the the, the proton packs um turning on and that <laughs> kind of noise it, 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 
this film goes to show that like he gets it. He yeah. gets it. Jason Ratman gets it. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, I've seen some people criticize this going, oh, it's just a retread of Ghostbusters. I'm like, yeah, if you look under the surface, it's the same, like I said, the same parts of it, but you know, you put the it's got a shiny, it's got a new hat. Mm. Um <laughs> I, it was it wasn't as forced as something like The Force Awakens, which you're like being slapped around the face going, Remember this? Remember this? This is cool, you know. Or the Matrix um, um, Resurrections. Yes, well, except remember going, you know, the Matrix Resurrections did it a little bit differently, but yeah, it was it was it was trying to, you know, play back those moments again in in a, yeah. in a different way. But they were there. Um, this one it, it has a different way of doing it in in a sense. Like you, you guys, the same beats are there, I suppose. But mm. I, I felt like it did it in a, in a different enough way to keep it interesting for me. Um, but the sound, the importance of sound. Imagine mm. if you'd read that you, Disney had done the sequels to Star Wars and they changed the sound of the blaster rifles that the Stormtroopers shoot. It's instantly noticeable, right? That sound is iconic. Not just the music, John Williams' score. The sound of a blaster is iconic. Mm-hmm. You know, the sound of a speeder bike is iconic. The sound yeah. of a lightsaber switching on is iconic. You can't just change these things, you know, or ignore them. They're, the sound cues... Uh, in every way, just as important as there's the music and the, you know, the story elements and stuff like that. And so this is, he gets this. So sound yeah. is a very important element here, and he really, really it revels in it. And these are the fan service moments. Yeah, and uh, like I was saying about like that that tingle factor from the from the music cues from the sound cues, he intelligently used it to elicit a response for something that was happening on screen as well. So it further heightened your emotional engagement and attachment to it. Like the the first time that it, um, Finn's character like uncloaks Ecto-1, it's like oh, just getting the, that little touch of music in there, even though it's beaten up to sin, it's a trash pile more than we've ever seen it before. I just felt that connection, you know, and it wasn't just straight up hey remember this look at this remember this it was like look at this thing that is aged you have fond memories of this you want to build that and it actually kind of got me into the mindset of Finn as he was like okay I can I can bring you back it was awesome it was and it also falls into the tagline of the movie afterlife and that is a big theme for the for the story here not only Ooh, it's ghosts in the afterlife, but the what happens after these monumental moments, such as um, the how the the original Ghostbusters team break down. We hear the the relationships between them break down and become very sour and bitter, and they've had to move on. It's it's, it's a variation of afterlife. Um, the the mum reconnecting with an estranged father, the grandkids, um, everything is all about this moving on from a traumatic moment. And it plays it really well. Intelligent use of the theme. Um, I, I agree with all that. Now, I did have some problems with this film, but mm. um, uh, spoiler alert. Big time spoiler. It's probably out about like in now. Um, the original cast do make an appearance. The rest of the original cast make an appearance at the end. Mm-hmm. But do you just sort of turn up out of nowhere and help them fight the the big bad at the end of the film? I was like, yeah. 
yeah, you could have spent a little bit more time on that. Like, mm-hmm. it just, I mean, obviously, I was waiting for it to happen. Yeah. But, like, it's like, fine, yeah, one extra scene. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a good scene actually at one point where uh, Fee contacts um, Ray in mm. the uh, occult bookstore uh, and gets his interest and he lets him know, he lets him know that um, Egon's dead and that, you know, the ghosts are coming back or something of that nature. And one extra scene at the end of that, like could have, could have, could have been enough, like him hanging up and him picking up the phone and going Venkman and cut there. Uh, then we yeah. know Ray's planning on something and it's, it's pre foreshadowing. They foreshadowed nothing. They just turned up. Yeah. Um, which you know, like, yeah, okay, it's forgivable, but you know, I was like, eh, for, the, for, the, for the time of thirty seconds, it's it would have made just enough of a difference. The uh, whole scene also where um, the ghost of Egon sort of comes back and helps Phoebe hold the the, the proton mm. pack as he, she's shooting Goza, and then hangs and hangs around to give a. You know, a thumbs up, to give a little an acknowledgement to the rest of the Ghostbusters and hug his daughter. And like, I've heard some people say how that was really heartwarming and touching. And I was like, "Oh, you're a simp!" Like, I mean, seriously, that was that was no seemed really um, saccharine to me, really saccharine and kind of manipulative. Like, okay, I I get it, right? Like, I liked you know. it, but it went for too long. It would it ended up becoming a hallmark moment. And it's like it could, it should have just been that momentary scene where you just get the reaction of the surviving Ghostbusters just seeing and just their response rather than this drawn out sequence. They didn't need it to be too long. They could have cut that down and used that to introduce the, reintroduce the original trilogy, you know? <laughs> so those are some of my problems with it. And that was like, mm. oh gosh, you're really trying to manipulate my emotions now. And as a result, I felt nothing because it's like I can see exactly what you're doing. It's lame and it's not going to work. You um, cold, heartless bastard. I am a cold, heartless bastard. I was just looking at going, Bill Murray looked like he couldn't have given two fucks about being in this film. That's just the way that his jowls are now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it also made me think, come on, man, like you should have done this 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, this would have been a good, you guys would have done something good. Um, Damn that bless him, he's tried. It's not, it's it was all down to Bill Murray. He didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um so but while I didn't like that scene with the Ghostbusters at the end, a whole and part of it, we didn't just like it. It was like I can acknowledge it could have been done better. Hmm. Um the other thing I, I right, sorry, so quick, the other thing I didn't like was the tiny marshmallow men. I thought that was stupid. I thought it was fun, but it it was the biggest part of the whole movie that didn't really fit. Like we were talking about it with my own private Idaho. That was in its if if they had kind of gone more heavy on the the physical comedy in the whole movie, yeah, it might have fit in a little bit more. But it was it didn't make any sense. I don't understand why there were suddenly tons of them everywhere. I mean, maybe if we had seen so like just a little bit of them kind of just all piling on top of each other and slowly becoming a big thing with the <clears throat> this unfulfilled threat of oh the, the giant stay puff marshmallow is going to come back at some point but they defeat goza before that happens or something like that maybe but mm, it sells a lot of funko bops well it might have done if anyone went and saw this film but um it, i it, it felt like an idea was left over from the 2016 film frankly to me 
Well, it would have made more it had sense. The look of it as well. It would have made more sense in that film than this one. Hmm. Um, but let's just say, though, to come back to what well, the inevitable comparisons between that and this, because I think they'll be there. Hmm. Um, I don't know who made the the bad decisions that made 2016 what it was. Hmm. I obviously Paul Feig takes his share of the blame. I don't know if he wrote that by himself. I have a feeling he wrote it with somebody else. Yeah. Um, but um, I think he had a hand in the script. And I think at the end of the day, he had pretty much full creative control, if I recall correctly. That was kind of his condition of doing that. So he takes his lion's share of the blame for what mm-hmm. that became. Um, but he's a talented filmmaker. Like he's made, you know, Spy was funny. Um, the Bridesmaids was very funny. The guy, guy knows what he's doing. So um, but this is the first franchise film he made. I don't understand who made the decision you know, about that this film was going to be not a sequel. Like, remember one of the main problems of this film was, what is this? Is yeah. it a sequel? Is it a reboot? Is it a remake? We, we remember, it wasn't sure. Remember the first mm-hmm. trailer that came out and said, you know, 30 years ago, four scientists saved New York. And everything disappeared. But then, like, they never mentioned the original Ghostbusters again in yeah. the film. And the original, did they or didn't I? I can't remember, but the, the original Ghostbusters were in it, but they were different characters. And you're like, what? But even if they were existing in a universe where the original Ghostbusters happened, they really needed to explain mm-hmm. what had happened subsequently, which Afterlife does. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is a universe where those films happened. And, you know, the, at least the first one happened. <laughs> they didn't talk about the Statue of Liberty walking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they did talk about those films and, you know, they acknowledged, you know, that nothing had happened for a long time. And that's kind of why people had forgotten about them. Mm. But the 2016 film just kind of was a really weird, you know, kind of, was it a yeah. reboot? Was it a remake? We don't know. You know, I think um, it was just a perfect medley of bad choices that on paper should have been good. Is it, I mean, I'm not even going to go into the fact of being women or anything like that because I've said many times, at least three of them I know to be extraordinarily talented comic actors. I don't know anything about Leslie Jones. Sorry, I can't comment on her. Mm. Um, But the other three, they know what they're doing. So I can only put this down to the script. And, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this because I'll be here all day. But We've put the knives in to Ghostbusters answer the call enough. um, But the fact that, like, you know, this film, having the Ghostbusters turn up at the end was very much a pass-the-torch moment. Yes. It's a very obvious pass-the-torch moment. We've mm-hmm. now got, you know, Finn, we've got Phoebe. You know, what this film could... I found myself thinking while I was on, like, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do mm-hmm. that? They were obviously prepared mm-hmm. to be in the film. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if there was... I think it was some sort that Bill Murray would only be in it if he couldn't be Venkman or something. I'm like, obviously, you twist the guy's arm enough, he would have done it because he yeah. did this. Yeah. So... You know, why didn't you do that? Why would they say that stupid first scene but it wasn't funny in yeah. with the ghost in the mansion? Why didn't well, you have no, that, the that was the funniest part, the the the, the tour the tour guy. Yeah, but that, but it still wasn't very good. <laughs> um but you know, why didn't there a scene where, you know, we see the original Ghostbusters turn up and they fight a ghost or something, but they one of them dies or they get crippled or you know, they get something happens and you know, um, Kristen Wiig is 
Ray's daughter or something like that. Or no, they, they don't. Need, they didn't even need any of that. Let's let's be honest. They didn't need the um the characters. If the characters, if the actors are going to come in and do cameos, then why the fuck did they have those characters? They should. Well, that have was just, bad again because he made you think. Well, the, why isn't that? That's Venkman. Why isn't he playing Venkman? Towards but, the end of the movie, they could have just very simply just had fucking Dan Aykroyd. Only Dan Aykroyd could have just turned up and said, like, okay, you think this is new stuff? You clearly haven't checked the internet, which would have been, which would have also validated their fucking moment where they said, like, oh, don't look at the comments, which is blatantly uh, an in-joke on the production of that movie anyway. But I just found myself just... thinking, though, that this film really, this film, Afterlife, passes a torch. Just, if you want to set up a Ghostbusters franchise, a Ghostbusters universe, yes. TV shows and stuff, and everything that Sony had planned to go after Answer the Call, mm. you needed to do it. You needed the hand of torch from yeah. the old venue. This weird hybrid remake, sequel, reboot thing that they did didn't make any sense. It put people offside from the first moment. So I'm like, mm. I don't know what I'm watching. Yeah. You know, um, and you needed some fan service in there. We're, we're trying to sell like we've got no fan service. Like it's a good, like it's a good thing, you know, like. This film, Jason Reitman respected what came before. He respected mm -hmm. his audience. He didn't need um, a dance-off scene, uh, for example. He also, you know, the horrible scene where Melissa McCarthy first tests the proton pack. When I was a kid, I fucking wanted a proton pack. Those were cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. and he's bouncing around doing physical comedy. I'm like, who thought that was funny? That's a terrible choice. Yeah. Treat, this, treat the original property with respect. It's a little bit like we come to it again. I said a lot, but they, when they started treating comic books, source material with respect yes. is when they started getting it right. When they started treating it like you would a Mario Puzo novel or something like that is when all of a sudden it started to click. Um, and they started making really good. Um, mm. I, I don't think Paul Feig had any respect for the source material. Um, I don't I feel like the film shadow over what the original films and well, I'm not one of those people who went around going, oh, I raped my childhood or anything stupid like that. <laughs> it, it, no, Misty, what are you doing? Well, wait, if you're going to make a film based on a beloved classic and mm. you basically go, well, I have absolutely, you basically treat that beloved classic source material like it's something you stepped in, you know, something to be made fun of, something to be, huh, that shitty 80s stuff. Where do you see what we do? We're so much better now. Our, our, improv physical comedy is so much better than the tightly scripted you know stuff that they had in the 80s like if you treat it with some respect it would have gone a lot further it was kind of what mm -hmm. i was thinking jason reitman was had some some real love for the um original source material i think and that came through in this film well that's i think that's the the thing um misidentity for ghostbusters answer the call 2016 however you want to tagline it um i i don't think it was a matter of um no one working on that and having no respect for the original ghostbusters movies but i to me it stinks of corporate fuck uppers um it's like oh you know what's funny right now these physical comedy movies. So let's bring some of that into it. And we've got these um, SNL um, ladies in. They'll be able to sell it, surely. Mm, yeah, but at the same time, does it fit? None, nothing in that movie fit. And it 
it fit to me when I look back on it and I watched it only a couple of weeks ago. It just, it feels like a, a movie by committee. This is what I'm trying to get at. So I, like I said, mm. I know Paul Feig is mm. a talented writer and director. And he's got at least three stars who I know are capable of really great work. Where did that not, where did the, the speed hump come in that said, you know what would mm. be really cool is we just completely ignored the original mm. and just made it from scratch. If you're going to do that, fine. You set that standard right at the beginning. You don't release a trailer, say, 30 years ago, Ghostbusters, blah, 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 and then they disappeared. You just go in fresh. Don't mention it at all. Maybe later on down the line you can bring it in if it's if you've created your own identity for your movie and you can you find some intelligent way to connect it to it, sure. But this was sort of like it did kind of feel like, oh yeah. Nah. <laughs> it, it did feel like if that's I mean, so as I said, I don't want to go much further in this because I we stuck the boots into this yeah. plenty of times. Yeah, there was a lot of people out there who've kind of gone, "Wow, you must hate women." I've had had that conversation. Yeah. You are a misogynist because you hate this film. As I've always said, there are many reasons to dislike this film that are not to do with sexism. There are yeah. reasons. Sex. There were sexist assholes who didn't like this film because of who was in it. Those mm -hmm. guys that don't know it are assholes and can mm -hmm. be safely ignored. Whereas <laughs> I think that by the same token, going the only reason to dislike this film is because you're a misogynist or you hate women or you have a problem with women being in it is maybe also not right as well. Like you can, mm. like it, like I said, for a lot of different reasons and, you know, basically giving the finger to something I really, really liked, um, you know, and, th you know, and, and kind of disrespecting it is, I think disrespecting it was, was part of a reason. And I think you can see a lot of a, re a lot of a fan service and stuff that Jason mm. Reitman got right. If it actually put that, if it actually taken note about something in 2016, they might've had more success than, than they did because people hated that film. And mm. so, so Siren has an interesting point here. Yeah. I think one of the big issues of the past five ish years is this need for nostalgia. It's been huge. We've fed into it, but there's prime examples like Ghostbusters movie that fall flat because they were simply money grabbing for the sake of nostalgia. hundred percent agree with you. I do. And I'll agree. Afterlife is exactly the same. Yeah. I didn't, I, I wasn't asking for this. I didn't feel like we needed another one. I was quite happy to leave it dead. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if you're going to do it, you're going to do a lot better if you do a good job of it, you know. And yeah. you've got to, you've got to, I mean, it's one thing to go, we want to bring everyone on board, but you got to get the fans on first. Mm -hmm. If you haven't mm -hmm. got the fans of your original on first, it doesn't, you're not, you're very you unlikely to get enough, you're very unlikely to get enough neutrals on board to, to make up for them. And, you know, the, the fans are something, kind of the opinion setters. So, uh, um, this is, make no mistake, this film is a money grab every step oh, of the way 100%. and it didn't need to happen and no. i would have been quite happy if it didn't exist but if i have to have a ghostbusters sequel this is the one i want as opposed to what we got five years ago following on from that comment does my comment about go, uh, back to the future now make some more sense to you if i don't want to put that energy into the universe um <laughs> Like, I mean, I absolutely, you know, I, I don't look, I do it. Can I? No, no, I, it doesn't in the sense that like, I, I, there is absolutely no way to make a good sequel to that film. That film is that they need to be left alone. 
needs to be enshrined in legislation. I could do it. I, I don't want to. I, I will tell you this now. I will never pay money to see a Back to the Future sequel, reboot, TV show, remake, you name it. They will get not a cent out of me. <laughs> that is a hard line right there. And I think that's a good way to end our conversation on Back to the Future Afterlife. Time so, for our sponsor? I think it is time for our sponsors. And let me just make a note of the timestamp there. Jesus, we're already up to an hour. <laughs> we Sometimes talk. I think you I agree. Some things should be left in the past. <laughs> uh, goes, uh, and Back to the Future will be left in the past until Bob Gale dies. The creator of the <laughs> film has said he will not in, uh, entertain a remake, a reboot, or anything of that nature. But when he passes away, who knows mm-hmm. what his estate will do. All right. So who are our sponsors this week, Trevor? Our sponsors this week are the uh, 1990 uh, ABC Kids Game Show Vidiot that used to air on the afternoon <laughs> show here in Australia. I used to love this show. I wanted to be on this show so fucking badly, but they shot it in Sydney. Now, don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, uh, use hashtag no discount at checkout at checkout to get no discount for all of our sponsors. Well, it's MCMT coming for your TV, scratching to the dial of my radio. Welcome to the afternoon show, another big week ahead of us. Hope you had a good weekend. Um, this week we have got a special presentation for you, a double episode of Degrassi High on the show tomorrow, so don't miss that. And also on the show later in the week, by popular demand, you guys requested that the New Kids on the Block documentary once again. We'll run that on 5.30 on Friday. But today on the show we've got lots of things happening. Melissa is in to talk about her new album Fresh, and we've got Vidya right now with special guest host from Home and Away, Matt Stevenson. afternoon we are going to find ourselves another champion video to put into the end of week playoff and our noisy funky audience is from Miller make some noise Miller fantastic yes we're also going to meet our video special guest host who this afternoon is an Australian television star we'll meet him a little later on but first of all let's meet our videos and zap them onto the contestant panel there they are Tina Wes and Melanie 
about Tina. Tina, you have you have a very interesting hobby. You're into ancient Egypt. Yep. Yeah? Why is that? Is there any particular reason or you just became fascinated by seeing it in books and things like that? Um, no, because they're different. I usually ask people who their favourite band or actor is. Who's your favourite Egyptian god? Uh, Iris. Iris. And who's Iris? She's a uh, motherhood god. Motherhood god. Fantastic. Where's into basketball, mate? Uh-huh. Yeah? Do you play? Sort of. Wes, are you a good player? Or are you a good basketball player? I don't know. You don't know? Is, is he any good? No. no. <laughs> Not much good at all, Wes. So who's your favourite player? Who's your favourite basketballer? Jordan. Jordan, Michael yeah. Jordan. <laughs> Chicago Bulls. And Melanie. Melanie, what sort of uh, TV shows do you like watching? Married with Children. Married with Children. Any, anything, anything else? else? Um, Degrassi, Degrassi, Degrassi High. High. Who likes Degrassi High? <laughs> Degrassi High and... The clothing that we wore back in those days. Good God. Um, so I, that was a, it's a kid's pop culture game show. I wanted to be on it so much. <laughs> that is, the host there is a guy named Eden Gaha. You're okay. probably not familiar with. That's, um, that's what he was doing in 1992. Subsequently went on to be the executive producer of shows like The Biggest Loser, MasterChef in USA, um, uh, the Island of Bear Grylls, The Apprentice, Survivor, um, in the United States. So he's kind of a big deal in reality television. Yeah, yeah, reality TV. He uh, learnt how to um, farm young talent early, I guess. <laughs> well, you see him trying to make those kids sound interesting in 1992. And, oh, I don't know. I'm not really good at it. Um, I really know nothing. I didn't think Australia could make me cringe anymore, but I was wrong. <laughs> oh, contraire. Challenge accepted, Siren. Tune in next week. <laughs> the contest has been laid down. Now, what should we talk about next? We're talking about Jurassic Park. Yeah, okay. So, um, I went down the nostalgia route somewhat and watched Jurassic Park and the Jurassic World movies, partly because I was having to walk around like a T-Rex and it was fun just going, <coughs> making really bad T-Rex noises. But also because we have got a new movie that is finally coming out later this year. And I realised something about the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World movies. None of them are particularly good. Except hot take. The first one's a classic. No, 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 no. The first one is the only one that can stand as stand through the test of good. Um, it is a classic, especially the John Williams uh, score. It's just beautiful, tingles, love it. Um, and that was the first, that was the one and only movie out of all of them that really captured the childlike glee oh you're right now if you're talking about the sequels i mean the two sequels from the original sequels jurassic park two and three Mm -hmm. are trash Mm -hmm. absolute trash and i wonder looking back on them now and looking at what the franchise is now if they are now no longer like the original jurassic park source material by michael crichton is more it's got more of a horror element to it and there's nefarious there's definitely more of the focus of corporations on it like the character of john hammond in the books he's not 
cute and cuddly Santa Claus like guy that we were presented with um, is much more nefarious. And that kind of aesthetic of a character is very prevalent in every single other Jurassic Park, Jurassic World movie. And now it's it's almost become a bizarre message movie uh, about pro-life and pro-choice and the the evils of corporate nature. I, I'm sorry. I don't think it's a memo. I don't remember it being a pro-life message in Jurassic Park. Well, that's the thing, especially in Jurassic World. There's just this regular reminder of these whilst these creatures were genetically created in a lab that does not make them anyone's property they are still their own sentient entity oh, okay we're talking about the new films here right yes, yes. i have not seen any of the new uh mm. generation of jurassic mm. thing is the first, as you sort of note the first one was really fucking good like yeah. a masterpiece mm-hmm. classic of all time spielberg at the Peak of, his At the peak of his power. And Lucas actually directed some of the second unit stuff on that film. Like Spielberg went off to shoot um, uh, Schindler's List and mm-hmm. left it to Lucas to finish. Like, I mean, like the guy hasn't got a great rep as a director, but he did Star Wars. Come on. He came up with Indiana Jones. Like, come <laughs> on. Like, I mean, that's pretty good. Uh, if you're going to leave a film in the care of someone, leave it in the care of George Lucas is probably a decent way of going about it. Yeah. But um, the sequels, like I said, were trash. I never enjoyed them. There's nothing good about them. Um, uh, you know, cynical cash grabs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I kind of, again, a bit like Ghostbusters, I was like, sorry, I never felt like I needed any more of that story. Three mm-hmm. was more than enough. So a fourth mm-hmm. film and a fifth film, just because it's got Chris Pratt in it, mm-hmm. I, it never, never got me in the door. Mm-hmm. Should I watch the the World? Huh? Should I watch Jurassic World? No. Your jaded narcissism <laughs> would, would just... Narcissism? <laughs> I knew that would get a rise out of you. I resemble that remark. <laughs> um, no, it's... They're, they're entirely unnecessary, and while they are better... Both of the the new movies are better than Jurassic Park Two and Jurassic Park Three. They still cannot hold a torch to Jurassic Park, um, purely because they end up they forget the the childlike delight of seeing the dinosaur for the first time. And Jurassic World, we are reintroduced to the world of Jurassic Park and the environment of Jurassic Park years after the disasters that took place in Jurassic Park 1, 2, and 3. And for a couple of years now, Jurassic World has been fully functional, operational. People have been safely going to see dinosaurs coming and going, and they like any theme park. Every now and then they bring out a new ride, bigger, better, badder, dinosaur that they resurrect from the dead and we are kind of stuck because none of the characters that we are presented with in these movies are 
gateways that we can latch onto for love of dinosaurs. In the first movie, whilst he hated technology, Sam Neill's character loved dinosaurs. He was just passionate about it. And so the older generation of audience could latch onto him. So like, oh yeah, I remember loving dinosaurs when I was a kid. That He was their gateway. And you still had that cynicism um, just there kind of with, with um, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character. And then for the younger audience, you had um, Lex and Tim, who were particularly Tim, who was that just like overly passionate, like, I'm going to talk to you about dinosaurs until you cannot stand it and you are going to have to trick me into another car. Because all the other kids, young kids, I don't care who you are, as a young kid, everyone goes through a dinosaur phase. I didn't. Well, you were never a kid. True, I, I became his world fully formed. <laughs> you did like Nuclear Man and Superman 4. Just took <laughs> bad movies and a strand of Superman's hair thrown into the sun. There you go. Done. And that's the recipe for a Travis. <laughs> but to Pepperidge Farm remembers. In Jurassic World, we have um, the kid who um, played the kid in Iron Man 3 whose name I can't remember and I don't really care. Um, he is supposed to... There's there's thrown away lines where they're saying, oh, you're supposed to be a genius or something. And he never does anything that's genius. I mean, his genius moment is where they're in one of these like uh, gyrospheres that's supposed to be safe and impenetrable. Hmm, guess what happens? But they take it off-road and they're like, oh, look, four dinosaurs. It's like, there's five. And they're like, oh, there's four. One, two, three, four. It's like, five. And he's just counting the reflection of one behind them. Like, wow, that's your genius moment? Okay, sure, whatever. But he's annoying. He's not um, a good gateway for the young audience to really get to engage. And then you've got the adult characters. Bryce Dallas Howard is a corporate shill. Don't think anyone's going, oh, yeah, I remember wanting to be a corporate shill. You're not going to empathise with that character. And then you've got Chris Pratt, who is trying to be a little bit modern animal lover, Steve Irwin-ish kind of character, but he doesn't go full Steve Irwin, so he's just... Um, because everyone, every action hero has to have worked with the U.S. Navy SEALs. He's a former Navy SEAL that now just trains raptors. Career progression. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a convoluted mess. Again, like I said it with Ghostbusters Answer the Call of it being a movie by a um, com, uh, community. This is another one of those. It's like, okay, so what do people want from Jurassic Park? They want the T-Rex. They love the raptor. They um, need to have those scares. Okay, so we've got to get good CGI and special effects in there. We should get some known actors in there to, to just, you know, carry the movie along. Everything's done serviceably. And Colin Trevorrow, I don't know if he's a good director or not. He was supposed to direct the third of the star wars new trilogy and left creative differences there and he decided to go back after missing the second uh, jurassic world movie he's gone back for the third one 
I don't know. This, I think this, the answer is probably no. He's made one good film. That's um the Tokyo not guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, and it's he doesn't. Look, I mean, people like Jurassic World. There, here's a seven on IMDb. He yeah. made a lot of money, and people yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. So maybe I'm out of line. He's saying, he, and I haven't seen it. So the only thing I've seen he's actually ever is safety no guarantees. So, um, mm. but the rest of his stuff seems a bit half-assed. It's a little bit like Gareth Edwards, right? He made one mm. good film, then he got um, Star Wars Rouge One, uh, fucked that up, uh, and we haven't seen hiding a hair of him since. <laughs> they had to get somebody else in to come and fix it. Was it Paul Greengrass or something? Um, someone else they had to get in to actually fix the damn thing um, after um, he uh, kind of made a mess of it. Wasn't it Ron Howard? No, it was Solo. Oh, that was Solo, yes. That's right. Um, the, the uh, I can't remember the exact. Someone, someone came in to actually fix it. They had to, get, they had to hire someone yeah. to do reshoots yeah, and re it right. and re-edit it. And, um, and it wasn't it wasn't him. Uh, it wasn't, sorry, it wasn't that. But he's not him. Like, he's going to group them together because... The Disney just started throwing these huge films yeah. at young filmmakers, which you know, on the surface is great, but I think these were young filmmakers who'd made one good film, mm. you know. Um, and it's, you we've know. talked about it in the past of those indie darling directors who make a hit move, hit indie movie, and then suddenly they are offered the keys to the kingdom, go off and make this. Whilst I really appreciate big companies putting their faith at least cursorily in independent filmmakers. Those independent filmmakers probably don't actually know how to work in a corporate industry. And it is it's a very thing to take on. It's a machine. FYI, it was Tony Gilroy, by the way, who paid $5 million for 12 weeks work to recut, re-edit it and stuff. Um, Rouge one. Um, so, um, Sorry, my, sorry to Paul Greengrass, it wasn't you. Um, but basically, you're right. It's a skill to work in these kind of films. Um, yeah, but you just navigating. look at it right. Prime example. Independent success with the Cornetto trilogy as well as the, the darling success of um, Scott, Scott Pilgrim. Um, tried to make Ant-Man, creative differences. He couldn't work within the Disney machine, and that is what Disney is. Every single one of their movies, whether it's Star Wars or... Um, any of their Marvel stuff or any of their live action stuff, they have created these machines to make billion dollars. That's all they care about. They need someone who comes in, can fit that cog perfectly there, keep it all going, keep it under budget, keep hit that deadline. And maybe if they're really clever, put a little bit of their own flair in there. That's all that they want from their directors. Uh, you saw you saw the light shining that a little bit this year, last year with um, Black Widow. Mm. The first uh, director they offered that film to before Kate Shortland said, no, thanks. Mm -hmm. Basically, she was told, you don't have to worry about filming the action scenes. We'll get somebody else to do that. Yeah. Um, so I feel like you probably also coming from the indie world, you have zero control over what your film is. You, you are mm -hmm. kind of very much told what to do, I think. So yeah. I wonder if that's Trevorrow's problem. He just, you know, maybe... Um, Jurassic is, um, he has a little more control. He feels a little more comfortable in that world than he did in the maybe. Disney world. Maybe, maybe. But I just think that they, they still haven't, they've, they've failed for like 1993. I think the first Jurassic Park movie came out in 94. 93. Yeah. 93. Yeah. There we go. 
um, they have not been able to recapture the soul of that movie. They have gotten closer with these more recent two, but still, nah, they're cash, they're cash machines and that's it. Entertaining if you want something in the background that you don't really have to pay attention to. Will you be um, checking out the new one? I will, because I love dinosaurs. Um, and the fact that they are really promoting the fact that they've got the original actors fr- um, of Jeff Goldblum, Sam Neill, and um, Laura Dern all coming back in some way. I'm curious to see how that goes. And part of me, I, it's just because I loved the game when it came out on PlayStation, Dino Crisis. And the idea of just evolving the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World franchise to just end up being a Dino Crisis movie series would be just so much fun. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, maybe finally that video game movie we've been waiting for. We hope so. One day that bet, bet will pay dividends. What are you going to talk about now, sir? Let's talk about the card counter. The card counter. Okay. Tell me about the card counter because I know nothing about the card counter. And let me just say straight up, that is the perfect way to go into this film. Okay. Um, unfortunately, that's about to change for you, though. Um, I watched this film earlier in the week, and I literally knew nothing about it, except it starred Oscar Isaac, okay. and it was directed by Paul Schrader. Okay. Those were two pieces of information I had. Okay. The card counter. Redemption is the long game in Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, told with Schrader's trademark cinematic intensity. This revenge thriller tells the story of an ex-military interrogator turned gambler haunted by the ghosts of his past. It does star Oscar Isaac as William Tell. That's not his real name, but that's how he goes. Tiffany Haddish uh, as Lalinda. Tiffany Haddish. I feel like I know her from comedy mainly. Um, I actually can't recall. Looking at her IMDb page, I don't think I've seen anything she's been in. But, um, hey, she's, I know the name, um, Tyler, Ty Sheridan, probably for best known for a Ready Player One, plays yeah. Kirk with a C. And we also have a little bit of Willem Dafoe action in here as Major Gordo. Okay. Um, the rest of the character, I don't think anybody else in this you're going to know. Okay. So, the film written and directed by Schrader follows William Tell, Oscar Isaac, a gambler and former serviceman. He sets out to reform a young man seeking revenge on a mutual enemy from their past. Tell just wants to play cards. His spartan existence on a casino trail is shattered when he is approached by Kirk, a vulnerable and angry young man seeking help to execute his plan for revenge on a retired military major. Tell sees a chance of redemption for his relationship with Kirk, gaining backing from a mysterious gambling financier, Lalinda. Tell takes Kirk with him on the road, going from casino to casino, until the unlikely trio that their sights are winning the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. But keeping Kirk in a straight and narrow proves impossible, dragging Tell back into the darkness of his past. Okay. Um, now, straight up, I thought this film was an absolute masterpiece in a lot of ways. Okay. Particularly Oscar Isaac's performance, which I thought was exceptional. Like, I don't know when the Oscar nominations come out. They must be soon. Um, but I would not be surprised at all to see Oscar mm-hmm. Isaac's name up there um, getting okay. a nod because I think this is probably the performance of his career to date for me. Um, 
you know, uh, interesting though, I, I didn't realize, you know, I didn't know a lot of his stuff apart from Star Wars. Um, and I think he did a film called Eastern Promises or something like that. No, the, yeah, not it. Anyway, um, a, a film, if he, uh, Triple Frontier, sorry, he did, uh, is the one I was thinking of. Um, and, and that wasn't very good. Um, I didn't realize he was in the X Men, though. Yeah, he was um, Victor uh, Victor Ooze. No, Ivan Ooze. No, I mean Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, he got there in the end. Um, it's like Ivan Ooze from Power Rangers. Um, well, um, there you go. So he's in the Marvel Universe as well, but not the MCU just yet. Um, so he plays a sort of notes, a former military interrogator. He served at Abu Ghraib. Side so, note. He already actually is in the MCU because he plays Moon Knight. He is now, yes, of course. My bad. Yeah. Uh forgot about that. Yeah. Um, he was at Abu Ghraib and he was trained in how to use enhanced interrogation techniques by Willem Dafoe's Magic Auto. Okay. He uh, ends up being jailed for his involvement in uh, what happened at um, Abu Ghraib for eight and a half years at a military prison. When he's released, he is decides to take up his Spartan life as a sort of notes of being mm -hmm. a semi-professional poker player. But as he described himself, he's an under the radar player. He plays for small stakes. He counts cards, which is technically cheating. Um when you're doing blackjack. Cheating. Well, you know, they're cheating as well, Casino, so yeah. You know, I don't think anybody anyway, yeah. He plays small hands to avoid being, you know, shut down and kicked out by the casinos. He plays it. And we're not talking Casino Royale casinos, right? We're not talking, you know, the, the big ones in Vegas. We're talking suburban casinos in, you know, on like Indian reservations in the States. That's a common thing. I remember last time I was in Los Angeles, not Los Angeles, sorry, San Francisco. Um, friend of the show, Petrie and I stayed in a hotel in a neighborhood that could best be described as the demilitarized zone. Um, and we need to go find somewhere to have somebody to get something to eat. And the only thing anywhere near us, apart from a little convenience store that sold like chips and stuff, was a place called Artichoke Joe's Casino. Um, and it was just in the middle of this crappy neighborhood. It was this casino. And I was like, that's odd. I thought gambling was illegal in the United States, but um, it's legal on Indian ground. So that's uh, why. Artichoke Joe's was allowed to trade, and Artichoke well, if you're ever in San Francisco, <laughs> feel free to check it out. It was unofficial it was, sponsor of the show. <laughs> it was something. It was something. All right, and maybe it, I had my backpack, and I maybe get take it off and show them what was inside because they thought I was smuggling liquor in. Yeah. I'm like, I was, I was thinking like, oh, I think you're gonna check it for like weapons or guns or like. No, no. Have you got liquor in your bag? I'm like, you've got people smuggling their own liquor in your casino. Wow, this place is classy. Were you um, causing a travesty? Oh. <laughs> the travesty was when Patria wanted a proper coffee and they had to dust off the coffee machine uh, and figure out how to use it, which was not, was a bit of a production, believe it or not. These are the kind of casinos that 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 um that William finds himself in playing, you know, small hands. Mm. Um and he's at one of them and he notices um is giving as a convention on it, like a security convention, and mm. giving a speech, he sees old major Major Gordo, well mm -hmm. the foe, which he sits in for in a little while. And while he's walking out, someone hands him a, a piece of paper with his name and his number and says to call him. 
We come mm. like it's a bit of a weird pickup, you know. Where to meet men is in a security convention. Uh, and it turns out that is Tyler Sheridan's Kirk. Uh, when he does actually talk to him later on, he Kirk uh, tells him who he is and that um, Kirk's father had served under Major Gordo as well and was someone who uh, William was vaguely familiar with. And he had also committed those type of crimes. He had been um, one of the people who committed the crimes in okay. Abu Ghraib. Well, I mean, they were crimes. So, um, And he had ended up killing himself due to a trauma that he'd been put through in Okay. Yeah, being a part of what took place in Abu Ghraib. And he has hatched a plan to kidnap and kill, torture and kill Major Gordo. Um, this is sort of triggers that, that sort, of, um, sort of spark of human emotion in William, which you do not see very often. And it's a sort of a synopsis noted, a real chance to sort of redeem himself here and, mm. you know, make his, I mean, do something worthwhile in his life to sort of, you know, um, to sort of make up for the crimes he, he's haunted by, but took place in, Nebu grave, and so he takes Kirk under his arm and takes him around on the, the poker tour and kind of supports him. And mm. it kind of almost takes a sort of a pseudo father father son dynamic between the two of them, or at least an older brother sort of dynamic okay. between the two of them as he tries to sort of direct Kirk onto a you know different path and away from the path of revenge. Mm. Um, that, that, that sort of a show as a the, the sort of story moves along. Um, and Owen William starts to really sort of realize something of his life. This is almost this is almost a turning point and takes him into a, a a brighter direction away from sort of the you know the nothingness of his existence, a nihilist nihilistic existence he'd been living up to that point in time. He starts to form a relationship with Lalinda. He's very successful in a in trying to you know uh, win the World Series of Poker. And the whole reason he takes on these, as he sort of said earlier, he likes being an under the radar gambler. Hmm. Why he's become an above a radar gambler is to attempt to win enough money in order to help Kirk guide Kirk away from from his you know destru- self destructive path that he's on. Okay. Um, but as sort of a but conflict sort of uh, arises from from you know that as Kirk seems to you know resist um, you know Williams then that would, he ain't better angels of Williams nature. Mm. Um, and the ending is quite shocking. It's okay. Quite shocking. Um, this is a fantastic film, but I can see it a lot of people. It's not got a great rating online. It's got a 6.3 in IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um, just for note, uh, the Ghostbusters 2016 answer of a call has a 6.9. Um, this has a 77 meta score, um, that I can see in a way why maybe this would annoy people. Mm. This is a... This is also a slow talky film, and I kind of criticized um, my own private Idaho for being slow and talky, but but I think this is a much better written film than, mm-hmm. than something like that. Um, it's not a lot happens for a long periods of time on this in this film. Mm. Um, but I was just the characters that Paul Schrader's created here and the way they speak to each other, I found completely compelling and I couldn't take my eyes off it. Mm. Um for those who are not familiar, and why am I keep referencing Paul Schrader? Why was his name in the title? Why are we making a big deal out of it? Paul Schrader is kind of a big deal, but probably not as a director. His best known work is as a writer. He wrote Taxi Driver. He wrote Raging Bull with Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Um, he has directed the odd thing here and there, um, but he wrote best known things, as I said, um, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, American Gigolo, Cat People, Mosquito Coast. It's, he's a fantastic writer. He's done some brilliant. We worked again with 
Scorsese's him bringing out the dead, which in fairness isn't Scorsese's best work. <laughs> um, he directed Cat People, American Gigolo as well. Um, but he's he's not he has not best known as a director. He is best known um, as a writer. But he has an extensive you know uh, filmography as a director <laughs> as well. I think as a director, he makes a wonderful writer. Mm. Um, I think it's one of those situations where I think we talked about it last year where we saw we've seen um uh what's the guy's name um he wrote being John Malkovich. Oh, uh, Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman going, sorry, I can't believe I forgot his name. He's moved into directing. He directed that movie uh, that was on Netflix last year, but the name escapes me right now. Um, um, the horror uh, film. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. Yes, that's right. Um, which was pretty good. But I think my takeaway from it was like where he, his best work has happened is when you have an incredible writer in Charlie Kaufman uh, paired with a really great director like Spike Jones. Or um, the French fellow he worked with on um, Eternal Sunshine, um, his name escaped me right at this point in time. Um, I can't believe I'm oh, having a blank tonight. Anyway, um, I think Schrader's kind of the same in a sense that he's a competent director, but a fantastic writer. And when you pair a fantastic writer with a fantastic director like Scorsese, who he has an ongoing relationship and Scorsese is a, an executive producer of his film. Mm-hmm. Um, you can produce something truly wonderful, like a taxi driver or a raging bull. Yeah. Um, in a film like this, I, this is a fairly low budget film. I understand. And, you know, they mm-hmm. probably couldn't afford a Scorsese. Um, Michelle so, Gondry. Sorry. Michelle Gondry. Michelle Gondry. Bad. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> And maybe he's just at the point in time in his life where he just wants to tell his own stories rather than handball them to somebody else. Yeah. Um, but he has created a really compelling set of characters here and a wonderful cracking story that really kept me kept me engaged and entertained. Um, but in fairness, it's probably not something we haven't seen him do before. Okay. Uh, he's just kind of the films he does. If, mm. you, if you go back to something like Taxi Driver, and to be fair, I'm not overly familiar with everything Paul's directed. I've seen some of it. It's a bit iffy some of it mm-hmm. but if we go back to something like taxi driver that's a good it's 1976 that's over 46 years ago um but that's a story about a lonely guy right a lonely yeah. veteran too mm-hmm. who uses violence you know to you know in the end um becomes violent in in, in an attempt to cope with the, the you know the alienation from the world around him i mean there's a million different ways you can understand that film it's a masterpiece but what mm. have we got here we have a lonely ex-veteran who isn't using violence to understand the word is alienated from the world around him and is coping through in this case you know in this case he's staying up all night playing poker low stakes poker in shitty suburban casinos as opposed to robert mm. de niro was staying up all night driving you know doing a shit job driving taxis around new york mm. um and they're both fairly nihilistic empty you know, burnt out men who, you know, the world's screwed up and thrown away. Um, and so I found myself making those comparisons between Travis Bickle and William Tell in his films. And I think they're fairly similar characters. And I think he's done that in other films as well. So if you're mm. looking for something completely new and different here, but Schrader hasn't done any of other films, you're not going to find it. But if you do something well, you know, ACDC have been making the same record for 50 years. Talk about no. Ian Ricardo's and um, Alan Sorkin. 
do what you do, do it well. And he does it well in this film. I mean, he doesn't do it always because he has made some stinkers. Um, but this one, he's is really great. So, um, look, I, I won't go on about it too much more of a performance. Like I said, Oscar Isaac's great. Tyler mm. Sheridan's, Ty Sheridan, so it's pretty good. Tiffany Haddish, really quite good in a serious role here. This is not a comedic role. Um, it's Willem fucking Dafoe mm-hmm. playing the, the, you know, the antagonist in a way. So, you know, enough said. He's he's absolutely firing at all thrusters these days, Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, he's probably only in it for five, ten minutes. So don't go in just expecting the Willem Dafoe show. Well, that's the thing. There's, there's certain, like, there's, there seems to be a subgenre of movies where these kind of heralds of Hollywood come in for five minutes or less and steal the show. I'm thinking of like William Hurt in um, A History of Violence, and um, Ed Harris again in History of Violence and things like that. They're, they're sort of like, you know what? I've just got this juicy little role for you. It'll take two days to film it. In and out, done, dusted. Oscar nomination, cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if he's getting an Oscar nom for this, but I mean, he deserves an Oscar nom for anything this year. It's probably Spider Man. He was great in that. Um, <laughs> but, he, but we've seen that before, I guess. But um, uh, look, I said a lot of people found this film dull because it's talky and there's no explosions. Uh, and or maybe they just went into it with a name like the Card Counter. They're expecting a Ocean's Eleven kind of, you know, maybe romp. Or what was that? Twenty one was that poker movie with the college students playing poker yeah, with the actor um, that we shall not name. It's not really about poker at all. It's yeah. not really about cards at all. You know, it's 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 really just the 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 the, the, the paint the coat of paint that's on this. Um, mm. um, I enjoyed the fact that um, aside from the, the the great performances and the writing, was it tackled a topic you don't really see a lot these days. In the sense that this is a film um, that kind of deals with the um, the way the Americans treated Iraqis in, in Iraq, especially in Abu Ghraib, which is kind of a story. You know, when it happened, it was a huge story. People probably, if you're young, you may not you know, be where you went around to hear about it, but it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And very quickly glossed over that. We don't talk about that anymore. We interestingly, we don't talk about what they did in Iraq anymore. Maybe you hear a little bit about Afghanistan in the last twelve months because America. Finally, the Americans finally pulled out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, time for another Rocky movie where he goes back to Afghanistan, by the way. That would be good. <laughs> um, Rocky, sorry, Rambo. Um, with these hands, I'm going to settle the disputes in the Middle East. Okay, Taliban, you're out of this thing. Um, <laughs> But the Iraqi wars, we don't talk about that one anymore, right? It was big there for five minutes, but we made a lot of films about it. And now mm-hmm. going to sit in the corner. Yeah. Um, not, uh, and, but not Paul Schrader. He hasn't forgotten about it. And um, the, the crimes that happened there, the grave is a really fascinating um, sort of kickoff point for this character. Um, yeah. and, and we have now a generation of people in, in that country, particularly because they spent a lot of, a lot of them wherever there, who are traumatized mm-hmm. by their experiences. In, in Iraq, and you know, it's a little bit like we had this whole some of all the Vietnam films that came out all the way through the eighties when that was over. Fourth of July, Rambo, all of that stuff hasn't happened with Iraq. No. So I'm glad it's another person, at least one filmmaker, who hasn't forgotten about what took place over there. Yeah, 
Excellent. Sounds like a solid recommendation. And where was I liked it? it a lot. If you like talky dramas, with you know, yeah, then that's probably for you. If you're looking for, it's not a date movie, though. <laughs> what platform did you see this on? Um, it is out at the cinemas here in Australia. <gasps> so um, I, I think if you are in Australia, it's playing at your usual art house kind of places. Cinema Nova, in particular. Mm. Uh, it's still kicking around. It might be the only place actually here in Melbourne that's actually still playing it. I don't know mm. if it's popped up on any of the streaming services just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just double check here. I think it might be a little bit early, frankly. And no, it's not available on any streaming services just yet. So, yeah, gonna have to go to the movies. All right. All right. Let me just get that time code in there. I want forty. 44, lovely. Uh, so, should we talk? Uh, do you want me to talk about Underworld and then we just quickly and then we can talk about Peacemaker and Boba Fett? Sounds like a plan. I hope you're still here, Siren. Yep, this, 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 is, this is for you, Siren. The things that I do for people. <laughs> so, Underworld. Underworld was a series of movies that was started by Len Wiseman. Um, it was part of a bit of that wave of things like there was um, around the same time you had uh, like Equilibrium and some of those alternative sci-fi movies that came out that were mid-range budget with rising stars. You know, and Equilibrium was just bef- just at the cusp of. Uh, Christian Bale becoming Batman and just taking off. Um, Kate Beckinsale, this was just her one of her big movies after being a bit of a British independent actress darling and before a lot of plastic surgery and, you know, Hollywoodization of her entire body. Um, it got some press because people boiled it right down to the crux of what the first movie was, which was essentially a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but with vampires and werewolves, which isn't entirely inaccurate. Um, But it has spawned five movies now in total. Really? Um, Wow. I had no idea. So there's Underworld, Underworld Evolution. Then there was a prequel one that goes into the, essentially the genesis of why the lichens, the Rise well, of the Lycans, I think it's called. Yes. Which, Awakening and Blood Wars. Yes, that's right. And interestingly, <laughs> Martin Sheen, no, not Martin Sheen, the, what, what's, Michael Sheen, there we go. Michael Sheen is the kind of the, the muscle toned, muscled heartthrob of Rise of the Lycans. And it's just weird seeing him do that, especially now that he's become very settled in the the british gentleman who's a little portly curly hair on top it's just weird looking back at that it's, it's like looking back at leslie nielsen when he was in forbidden planet and it's like that's not the same person is it it's weird it's worth noting as well here that um kate beckenstall correct me if i'm wrong was married to Len Wiseman, is or was married to Len at some point in time. Yes. They, they are no longer. INDB says they are divorced. Mm. So it was during the, the, I think, the first two movies, that, that which incidentally are the only ones that Len Wiseman directed. I think he is producer, executive producer for the rest of them because he's married for 15 has... years. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, 
though i think what really needs to happen is when was the last one made five years ago uh god i had no idea it happened you know what really needs to happen is we need to get kate beckinsdale and Les Wiseman together with the other husband and wife team who make horrible science fiction horror films. Don't say we, need, we do no. not need, we need the Resident Evil Underworld crossover. We do not want Kate Beckinsale together at last. Oh God, that would be nightmarish. Apparently though, looking into some of the information about Underworld, there were talks of that happening. There were also talks of Underworld having a cameo um, by Wesley Snipes' Blade, as well as various other franchises that they were kind of tying to this. It's a, it's a fascinating world, and they have a lot of lore in this world. And But the problem is that the story itself, the movies, the acting, and everything around it that actually makes it a film just is not the sum of the potential parts that they have for this quite well thought out world of lichens and werewolves, uh, lichens and vampires. It's interesting. An interesting, what if, like what if this idea had been given to another director who would just, had more talent to it and they had treated it with more respect rather than it going very quickly down the B C route of, of Hollywood second sons. <laughs> it's, it's just a weird one. Can't yeah, say I, I hated it. I hated it. Although I thought, I know it's the first one has a seven on IMDb. People liked it. I thought it was shit. Um, like I said, I'm. You, we wouldn't be partial to Kate Beckinsale in, in a skin tight cat suit as a heterosexual man. Um, he was <laughs> 25 when the film came out. Like, I was down for that, and then I watched it. And I'm like, no, sorry, that's not enough. Um, this is awful, <laughs> awful. Len Wiseman is a terrible director. And fascinating to see that Danny McBride co-wrote the original story. Not that Danny McBride. Ah, how many it could there be? Um. <laughs> It is a different Danny McBride. I remember when I was looking at the credits, I was like, what the fuck, Danny McBride? The righteous a, here we go. He seems to have done nothing else except these films. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's a shame. Uh, and Kate Beckinsale is a categorically terrible actress. Yes. Like, she's never been in a decent film, period. In Kate, unless you rate this one, which I don't. So No, I do not rate this one as a good movie, and it's certainly not a good performance. Yeah, when I can remember her from in, she was very big in Pearl Harbor, which is again an awful film. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in Van Helsing in 2004, an awful film. Bad, bad. Um, so she was in The Aviator, but I think she was in it very briefly. So, but you know, um, I guess that kind of undermines my my theory. She's never done anything good, but you know, she's not been in much. She was in the remake of Total Recall. Yeah, no, she was quite good. In Much Ado About Nothing in 1993. Uh, well, can't say I've seen that one. So, yeah, oh, I was quite good. I will doff my hat to her British indie days. Mm-hmm. We're getting we're getting long again. Should we? Should we? Uh, sorry, um, sorry. And if that wasn't as deep a dive as we would have liked on these films, I mean, you know, there's a lot of streaming stuff out there. I don't know why you punish yourself like this, but should we talk a little Boba Fett? And um... yeah, let's do let's do that. 
Peacemaker. So we are now up to episode five, I think, of the Book of Warfare. Uh, yes, I, th I think that's the one. It's the one that is a sneak preview of season three of The Mandalorian. Yes, uh, Return of the yep. Mandalorian, it's called. Um, yep. I've seen a lot of stuff like um, The Mandalorian, it took The Mandalorian to save the Book of Boba Fett. Again, I don't understand what people aren't enjoying about this. It's not all explosions, mm. um, but I'm thinking it's okay. It's probably not as good as The Mandalorian. Um, and in fairness, the episode with basically being all basically an episode of the Mandalorian yeah. shoved into the middle of the Boba Fett series is an odd creative choice. And it can be the link back to the Boba Fett story is tenuous. It's literally a 30 second conversation right at the end of the episode. Um, the synopsis is an unexpected ally emerges. Okay. This episode was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. So there's a mm -hmm. connection back to um, Jurassic World. The uh, Jurassic Worlds. Um, so we catch up with the Mandalorian doing his Mandalorian <laughs> shit, um, <laughs> swinging around a big sword. He took off um, uh, Juan Carlos Esposito at the uh, end of the last uh, season. Uh, I can't remember the character's name. Darth Thingy Bob. Um, um, what's his name? Uh, Moff Gideon? Moff Gideon. Um, the dark saber, which looks cool, yes. um, but interestingly, he seems to be missing. He can't really get hang and handle it very well yeah. in a uh, trying to take down when you fight against it. The um, maybe he catches up with the um, they call the armorer, and mm -hmm. the, apparently the only ever surviving Mandalorian in the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, at which point they find out he's taken off his helmet at some point in the past, and they decide, well, there's only three of us left in the universe. Well, we better kill this guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, well, no, they don't, they don't try and kill him for that. They just kind of try and kill him. No, that, that wasn't about him um, uh, taking off his helmet because that revelation comes after the fight. The fight was about trying to win the Darksaber because the the other one that wasn't the Armorer or the Mandalorian, um, his house originally created it and he wanted it back. So he challenged the Mandalorian to fight, ended up losing and... I th that was the point where they said, like, have you ever taken your helmet off? And he cannot answer because he has. And then they go, yep, you're out of the club. Bye-bye. Excommunication. Like that moment, like, in Ghostbusters. When someone asks you, if you're a guard, you say, <laughs> yes. If somebody asks you, if you've taken off your helmet, you say, no. Um, <laughs> my, 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 my response, if I was the Mandalorian in that point, it's like, so do you sleep with your helmet on? That's a stinky helmet. Nose, you need to take the helmet off. Like, I mean, maybe <laughs> sneezing maybe, is the curse of all Mandalorians. Maybe this is a timeline where the uh, unspecified virus of unknown origin just never went away. So everyone wears masks. Um, <laughs> so then we, we, the story then transitions from 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 this showdown about him taking his helmet off onto Tatooine, mm -hmm. where he's trying to try and reclaim. But he's word word from the. Um, junk merchant there but she has a replacement for the, the razor's edge is that what it's called the razor edge which is called yes. also i think a cool acdc album um <laughs> but the ship she has to replace it with is um basically the starfighter from episode one mm -hmm. um maybe it's not the starfire from episode one that, that anakin shoots down the 
trade envoy ship with, but <laughs> it looks a lot like it. Um, and then we have basically uh, a, an 80s team movie style montage of them fixing it up. Uh, at which point we find out the, the junk merchant, does she have a name? Um, no, I don't know what an actual character's name is, but um, actually has once dated a Jawa. Yeah, that information I did not require, but anyway, uh, this is an episode full of Easter eggs if you're mm-hmm. a Star Wars fan. Um, and they're, they're all the way throughout, you know, through the, the thing, the big pipe thing that they need to get the, the Starfighter working again is also uh, mm-hmm. a throwback to the original Star Wars and addition to the Starfighter being built by hand for the Queen of Naboo. Um, you go, and if you don't recognize that, well, are you really a Star Wars fan? I liked the audio cues, we talked about them before. Um, it was they actually were when they were doing Pimp My Ride, they they basically they were using a lot of engine noises from the pod race sequence of the uh, number one. So it's like, okay, you know what? People liked the look of that Starfighter, people kind of liked the pod, uh, pod racing element let's merge those to one in a friendly montage and salvage that those nice little bits <laughs> it's it's them a prime example of um uh dave Filoy, uh feloni uh, dave Fenoy cherry picking the bits of the star wars universe that he wants and is going yep i'm gonna save that little bit i'm gonna save that it's got ugh, something on it let's just bring that over here and clean it that's that's what this episode was and i i really appreciated it but why sandwich it this is kind of a more egregious version of what they did with um season two of stranger things where they had the one episode all about 11 in san francisco and it's like well how does that tie in with anything they did exactly the same thing here it is odd but it was fun so I'll give it a pass. Shill. Um, Disney I, shill. If, it's funny, these guys... I, said, I was a bit surprised to find that people weren't liking this series. Mm. It's it's not as good as The Mandalorian. Uh, interestingly, Boba Fett, for a character who people have adored for decades, isn't as compelling a character as this brand new one they came up with more recently. And I feel like, you know that probably is a, a black mark against the writing in this series that this is a character people have wanted a series or a movie for, for a long, long time. But therein lies the problem. The allure of Boba Fett was the mystery. We didn't know who he, who he was. We didn't know anything about him. We just knew he was the one guy that stood up to Darth Vader. So like, he's no good to be dead. And that was it. And it was like, okay, he's cool. Explaining anything about a character like that, you ruin everything. Potentially, you're right. Potentially, there was no other way out of this another than ruining the mystique. But look, I said, I'm enjoying the series. I think it's good. I'm looking forward to the next episode. But he always seemed like kind of a badass. Yeah. And Tamir Morrison in this is kind of a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can see that criticism, but it's he doesn't do much. He relies on a lot of other people around him to do stuff for him. Like Fennec yeah. Shand is kicking ass and taking names. Mm-hmm. Um, how long till she gets her own series, really? Um, the check is in the mail, I think. I would be sure about that. 
but that like, I don't know why I'd be cool with that because she's really cool, and I think um, who actually plays her in this um, Ming Na Wen. Ming Na Wen is doing a fantastic job with the character, mm-hmm. and she's overshadowing. We need the next few episodes. We need some serious badass Boba Fett action. I I kind of ominously from the start of this show, I've had this the nagging feeling it's the same sensation and sentiment that i had for the first series of picard where i thought it was going to be this slow boil to this really good denouement right at the end of the series season where it just brings it all together and it's just really gut punch and they fucked that up i getting a bit of a whiff of that on this now maybe but in fairness john favreau and Nathan poloni Filoni, uh the writers of this aren't robert kirkman they aren't committed to the message or whatever it is that Kirkman's doing of that series. Like Kurtzman. they are Robert Kirkman. Kirkman is the poison that has destroyed Trek um, for me and a lot of other people. Mm. Um, he Favreau and co here where they can, maybe as I've said, there kind of been some missteps here mm-hmm. and there. I don't think they've quite got the tone right. He needed, we need, we need, we need the badass. Mm-hmm. He have not this... quite got that. This is further evidence in my big canon that I keep bringing up for all of these streaming channels where they're creating their own content. Why the fuck are you sticking with this t- these scheduled time slots of half an hour, 45 minutes? And there's just, if you ha- need to have a short little 15 minute episode, do it. You are your own master. Just fucking do it. Poof, touche. touche. Some of these episodes do vary a little bit in length, but. Um, I guess maybe if they have, there's some sort of research as people want to predict the length of a show. But um, as I was saying, like, I have some issues with how some of the choices they've made here so far. But most of all, I like it. And as I said, I don't think they're in the same boat as somebody who has... It's it's like Kirkman's given, been given the keys to a a beautiful car from, you know, beautiful classic car from the sixties. Like the one that Steve McQueen drove in bullet, you know, pristine (laughs) condition. And he's gone, fuck this car and fuck everyone who likes this car. I am going to take it and drive it in the demolition derby because that's what you do with cars. Um, I'm I'm sorry. You cannot have (laughs) the quality of the Trek universe before Kurtzman was patchy. But it had, I mean, it was patchy, but then again, so we're going to go too far down the rabbit hole of this uh, uh, you know, analogy here, but it's, it was something people adored. They adored it with its flaws. In the same way that people, uh, a lot of people adore Doctor Who. Yes, that's fair. You know, it wasn't, you know, those can't, you know they adored it the way it was, and he's basically gone, fuck it, I'm going to destroy it. He is the NWO. He's the NWO of the Star Trek universe is what he is. He is the Hogan Nash and Hall uh, of that. To be word. fair, that, that analogy is very accurate because when NWO first appeared, they caused some interesting stuff over at WCW, such as, just like the reboot of Star Trek. That was actually promising, and then it went downhill because they stuck around for too long and did, just Discovery kept Discovery was the finger poke of doom of a Trek universe. Um <laughs> So wrestling fans will know what I mean. Should we talk a little bit about Peacemaker before we yeah, get that's everybody has to go to bed, including yeah. us, because I have a job. Um, 
Uh, we are now at episode five of Peacemaker as well, actually. Yeah. Um, I think if you you up to date, I am up to date. Yes. Um, episode five is Monkey Dory. Mm-hmm. Um, Being scout the apparent hub of for the alien food supply, only to come face to face with a full fledged invasion. Meanwhile, Audie's attempt to sell out his son to the police is complicated by Mern's mysterious contact. Mm-hmm. So, um, as notes, we have a sort of most of a team together off raiding the uh, production facility in this one. Mm-hmm. This is the one where they really synthesize into a team. Mm-hmm. And I really liked how it was done in this. And and mm-hmm. um, I don't want to go too deep in this again. again I, I think people are probably getting sick of us jerking off over this show, but this show is so fucking good. It has no business, absolutely no business being this good. Yeah. It's, and I, I put it on Facebook. It's it's funny. It's exciting. Yep. It's yep. fucking disgustingly violent. Mm-hmm. And it's moving at the same time. Mm-hmm. But how? How do you do that? In any of those four elements in a half hour TV show, 40 or well, 40 minute TV show, really. But you know, it, who does that except for James Gunn? Yeah. And I think that part of the real charm of this show is he wrote it super quick. If, if they had said, Oh no, you know what? Let's just refine and tailor it and just fine tune it. I think it would lose a lot of its charm. I think you're right. And he is also, is also is a fine example of a studio getting the fuck out of its own way. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have mm-hmm. to imagine that like it was part of his deal was to go, Hey, I get to do whatever I want because who else would have greenlit him using rat catcher two and polka dot man and, and suicide squad. Yeah. And I love the little references throughout the show to other obscure DC characters. Like mm-hmm. in this latest episode, uh, John Cena's um, Peacemaker references working with Matarita Lad. And I'm like, that that can't be a real thing. And you go, Matt, and you're like, oh my God, there really is a Matarita Lad. Who thought that was a cool idea? Someone. And for a brief moment, it was beautiful. 1962, right? Like, so he has gone deep into that archive mm-hmm. of DC characters and pull out some real, like last week he mentioned, yeah, we, we talked about, he mentioned Dole Man and mm-hmm. a couple other Man real obscure, Bat. uh, Batmite and stuff like that. And like, and my, I was like, it's almost like a DC education in DC law here. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the other characters are really starting to coalesce around him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, his relationship with um, Freddie Stromer's vigilante is brilliant, hilarious. Mm-hmm. Daniel Brooks, I feel, is really starting to hit a stride as Le- Leota, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm really enjoying seeing a, a, um, Jennifer Holland's Amelia Harcourt start to mm-hmm. find the heart in the team. Steve yep. Agee really stood out, and he's John Economist in this episode. Yeah. And it, it, this is the the episode he had to have with his bonding with Peacemaker, mm-hmm. um, and over the love of Hanoi Rocks. Uh, rocks. Um, the we've talked before about the the how the soundtrack and the, it's almost the um, the resurrection of of hair metal, um, <laughs> you know, by by James Gunn is gone. It's been ignored for, and made fun of for far too long. It's time that somebody took us aside and said, you know what? There was some fucking great music that came out of that scene. Yeah. And here you go. I'm going to base an entire TV show around it. Pretty much, pretty much. 
I just love the show. I, I cannot wait for the next episode. I can't wait to see where this ends. Um, I think it's, it's been, been a reference we talked a little two. about last week. There will be, it looks like there will be a season two. Excellent. I'm all, I'm on board. The, the news came out, I think, the day after our show last week, which, of course, you know, as usual, producers called it. Um, but I think the story came out, I think it was a, a quote from James Garn, I assume, from Twitter, him saying, yeah, look, the studio basically, uh, aside from a few hiccups, a few uh, crossing some I's and dotting some T's, brackets, me, um, you know, this show is going to happen. So I re- read that to mean the studio wants to do it. Mm-hmm. It's just a case of fitting it into his schedule with um, Guardians 3, which I think is being filmed as we speak. Now, I think, um, yeah. So, and I think there was also a hint that there would be another uh, Suicide Squad's character spinoff. Yeah, yeah, there was talk about that. I can't remember who it was, but yeah. I don't think it's actually been announced uh, who it was. Um, mm. There was a hint that, like, well, yes, everyone would like to see uh, Margot Robbie, um, mm. but... Again, pretty busy lady, quite mm-hmm. quite an in-demand actress. Could she mm-hmm. really take the necessary time off to do, you know, a, a TV series? Who knows? Um, so another Suicide Squad spin-off series in the works, James Gunn recently told us. Uh, we're working on something else now, another TV show that's connected to that universe. Gunn told us, I can't quite say. In addition, says about a second season of Peacemaker, which recently dropped episode five today. There's a really good chance of that. We have the biggest show in the world right now. Um, so that all sounds encouraging. Um, the hint, and was, I have no idea whether it means anything at all, was the mm. article that I read about the second spin-off had a photo of Ratcatcher 2 in it. Uh. Now, that could mean nothing. It could just be the editors going, I really want to see a show about her. <laughs> uh, I have a... I don't know. I just don't feel like there'd be a spin-off series about Margot Robbie because, I mean, I, I'm sure HBO would love one yeah. um, that she doesn't come cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how does she fit into a schedule? She's a producer. She does a lot of stuff with that now. So mm-hmm. I don't know that they could get Margot Robbie for something like that. Um, I would, same with Idris Elba mm-hmm. kind of guy. Maybe he's going to be the next Bond. Yeah. You know, I kind of expect it to be, um, actually more to do with maybe having some more of the characters from Suicide Squad turn up and um, use it as like a backdoor entrance for like um, more of the girls from Harley Quinn's movie of like uh, Black Canary and uh, Huntress and that sort of, those kind of guys. Cause I would love to see um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead continue Huntress. She was one of the very best things about a very, very, tepid um harley quinn movie at best um and just to see her actually be able to fully embrace the role much like john cena has with peacemaker in the in a show yes but um i think there was something about mary elizabeth going over to the mcu for something or for for a new star wars movie or something along those lines she she, she just got pegged for for one of the big franchises so time will tell Rat Catcher kind of makes the most sense because she was a really breakout mm-hmm. character from that film. I don't know, Polka Dot Man would make sense as well. He was an mm-hmm. interesting character in that, and it was quite a bit of depth to that character as well that he gave in the film. Um, so one of those would probably be my guess. I don't see King Shark film working per se. 
Yeah. Um, it was, she has been cast in the Ahsoka Star Wars TV series as someone. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm always glad to see Mary Elizabeth in things. She's one of my mm. favorite actors. Yes. Um, yes. Horribly, horribly underused in the pathetic um, uh, the Harley Quinn film. Mm. Tepid was generous. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, I think we'll come to the end of the show. We just busted over the two-hour mark again because apparently that's our thing. Um, thank you so much, Siren, for joining us. Um, and thank you for piping in with some of your thoughts as well. You are welcome to do that. It's, we encourage it. We have talked about My Own Private Idaho, which was this week's chain movie. I have picked Ripley's Game uh, game as our link in the chain. We talked about Ghostbusters Afterlife with more of the spoilers. So again, post-podcast post reminder of that. I didn't even change that. Um, we talked about Jurassic Park, Jurassic World series, Card Counter, which is, sounds like a fucking awesome movie, frankly. Um talked about the Underworld series, and finally finished up with updates on Peacemaker and the Book of Boba Fett. Now, don't forget, you can like, share, and subscribe. We do really like that when you do it, because it just makes my heart go all fluttery. Um, next week, I am going to be talking about my boy, Guillermo del Toro, his latest movie, Nightmare Alley. I'm going to check that out. I have plenty of time to watch it, and I am excited for it. It looks good. So, yes. Great cast, too. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a, a delightful blend of um, Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, plus the stereotypical Guillermo del Toro insanity that is just divine. Um, and we'll be in the same room together. So, you know, with yes, that. Yes, we will, which, you know, would we'll, we'll just be strangely awkward and social distancing. <laughs> we'll just be right on the edge of the line. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much ladies and gentlemen for supporting the show and um incidentally last week's show is going to be up on podcast services later tonight and then this one will go up on sunday but uh, don't forget you can always go to twitch.tv slash the fried brain to watch it at any time after it is live or youtube.com slash armchair producers thank you very much good night good night <laughs>